You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is, is well, some new guy. Hey, <laughs> introduce yourself. Hey. Tell everyone about yourself. Uh, so I am Charlie Chapman. I'm a uh, software developer, uh, an iOS developer now, I can say. Um, uh, you actually talked about me in the last episode of your podcast. Uh, I developed the app Dark Noise, which is a ambient noise app, um, and it is now in the App Store. And so now, uh, apparently, I got on your radar somehow through through the Twitterverse, and uh, now I get to talk about Apple news with you today, which I am very excited about. Fantastic, Charlie Chapman, not not the uh, silent film movie actor. No, no, that's Charlie Chaplin with an L. I am. Chapman with an M. Fantastic. Long time <laughs> listener, are you? Uh, sort of. If you count long time as I discovered your podcast uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and now I am an avid subscriber. I haven't missed an episode since. <laughs> where where I haven't missed an episode since means one. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I did. I did enjoy it. So, you know. Fantastic. Fantastic. So thank you very much for being here. Let's talk about something that you can actually uh, that you have some information about or, or at least some knowledge about. So Apple has just released the fourth iOS 13.1 beta, the iPad OS 13 developer betas, and, and they're also doing the 11th tvOS 13 build. One of the things that I think has been interesting about this season has been that they've been releasing betas for iOS 13.0 at the same time as they've been releasing iOS 13.1. Yeah. <laughs> interesting is uh, is definitely a word. How weird is that for you as a developer? <laughs> uh, well, so, like I said, I'm, I'm actually a new iOS developer, so this is my first uh, release cycle. And let me tell you, it has been very confusing, and it doesn't seem to be just me that's confused by this. So I'm not entirely clear on what I'm supposed to be targeting at any point. Every time there's a release, uh, everybody jumps on Twitter and tries to figure out what's going on and what we should all be doing. So it's, it's definitely been very confusing. Um, I think things have been relatively sorted out by now. Uh, we're recording the day of the actual iOS 13 release, and I haven't seen nearly as much kvetching uh, in the last day or two as I had kind of the couple weeks prior. But it has been it has been quite a mess. Well, so that's that's one of the things is that you know there have been people who've been slightly convetching about things that are are release features. For example, now that that three D touch is gone, and we've got haptic touch. When you long press on an icon, the icons don't immediately start shaking. Instead, you get a menu called rearrange icons and and something else that I can't remember. And there's no obvious delete icon in that menu. Yeah. So, you know, if you wanted to actually delete an, uh, an app, you would have to either tap on rearrange and then tap on the X. Or if you just hold longer until that menu disappears, which, of course, how would you know to do? It doesn't make any sense. Then they start shaking. You can delete them. So there's the tip for today. But it, it, it's one of the things that Stephen Trout and Smith commented on was that basically under the covers behind the scenes that this release has been a release where everything is on fire, that nothing is going smoothly. <laughs> Sure feels that way. Yeah, like, uh, I, I, like I can tell you from my perspective, and I don't think I'm alone in this, um, once I decided to sort of um, pass by the extra press you get by having an app on the actual launch day, mm -hmm. uh, I kind of have decided to just wait out the storm because 
it really does feel like everything's on fire. Specifically for me, um, the main features of iOS 13 that I wanted to add were all related to shortcuts integrations and uh, like HomePod integrations and stuff. And like, I don't even know that anybody has an answer yet for the HomePod firmware because mo it seems like the iPhone is the only one that's getting a software update uh, today. And everything else is waiting until the 30th? But no, I haven't seen any official word on what the HomePod's going to do. And I know that usually moves along with the phone, but is that going to wait with everything else? And I know there's some discrepancies uh, as to which, like, if you're trying to do shortcut stuff through your HomePod, but your phone is using newer software than your HomePod, there can be some problems that you have there. And uh, plenty of words have been said about the issues with the Reminders app and some of the other things like that. So... Yeah, it, I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of customer support complaints, both to Apple, but also to developers uh, all over the place here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and this is a real problem in terms of, for example, iPadOS, right? If you're using Notes or iCloud storage with, with uh, iPhone, and then you go to iPad and iPad isn't on iPadOS 13, then things get weird with iCloud storage. Right. And Apple's forcing that scenario to happen to everybody who uh, listens to their at least usual uh, kind of really pushing you hard to update. And uh, I haven't seen the update on my phone yet um, for iOS 13, although I'm on the beta, so I guess that's why. Yeah. But I, I'd be really curious to see if they're going to push it as hard as they have in the past or if they'll kind of wait a week or two. And the only people that will get the update are the ones that know to go check for one. Well, they've, they've done rollouts in the past where they've sort of been waves of rollouts so that they don't overtax the servers. And, and of course, right. as I check right now, it's telling me that 12.4.1 is up to date. So they have yet to push that. Of course, it's still early in Cupertino as we record this. Right. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what time they normally uh, roll this out. Or like you said, it's, it's usually waved. So it probably depends on the device. But but it really wouldn't surprise me if um, they they wait to do their, like, showing badges and kind of badgering you to update like they normally do. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they waited to do that until 13.1 is released and iPadOS and all of the other uh, iOS-adjacent uh, operating systems all release on the 30th. Yeah. Well, so 13.1 and iPadOS 13.1 are expected on the 30th. Right. Feel free to wait for those. You don't have just as we caution listeners to uh, to to avoid installing betas unless you absolutely have to or you have a good justification to. Feel free to wait for thirteen point one as well. I'm I'm sure thirteen point zero probably feels great to a, a consumer, but if you encounter things like iCloud and and other issues with reminders, there's safety in waiting. You know, just because your phone is on iOS twelve doesn't mean it magically stops working because it's the twentieth. Yeah, I would, I would go further and say if you use um, an iPad and an iPhone and you use the like built-in reminders app, I would just recommend waiting <laughs> until you can get your iPad updated at the same time because uh, in the beta cycle, it's been, it's been painful, and I suspect it's going to be similar for the actual real release, which is a little concerning. So we know that Lisa Jackson is the head of Apple's Environment Policy and Social Initiatives, and According to her, Apple is using recycled rare earth elements in the Taptic engine for iPhone 11 and iPhone 11 Pro. Why is this interesting? 
to me, it's because I, I've seen a lot of comments in the past couple of weeks about how it's, you know, all of modern technology, but iPhones get targeted specifically because, of course, iPhone's an easy target to pick on, that, uh, you know, mining for lithium or rare earth magnets or, or some of the other materials required to make these things is a non-environmental choice. That, that these things are bad for the planet, that it's only going to become harder and more expensive to mine or, or um, accumulate enough of these things for production in the future, and that basically buying an iPhone is making the planet worse. That if you want to prevent climate change, don't buy an iPhone, is, is some of the things that you see people say. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole, but people love their hyperbole on the internet, don't they? Yeah. Well, so there are 17 chemical elements that are used in the production of, of the iPhone, more or less. And these rare earth minerals are used in the Taptic engine. And so environmentally, what they're doing is they are using recycled elements for the iPhone. Now, what's interesting to me is that, you know, we know that Apple has a big trade-in program and a big recycling program, but Apple will be using recycled earth from an unnamed outside supplier and not from their own recycled iPhones. Oh. So basically, they've created a market. They've created a way for entrepreneurs who found a way to recycle these rare earths to supply them to Apple. Now, obviously, Apple's begun research to how to recover the rare earth products from their own products, so iPhone, iPad, and stuff like that, and they're encouraging other companies to do the same. Um, and we've seen those things like Liam, the robot that took apart iPhones into core components, or Daisy, the, the other successful robot that dismantles 200 iPhones an hour. And um, it's, it's interesting. I think these things are important because it's entirely possible that mining for these things becomes more and more difficult. You know, we, we've had to invent all kinds of different ways of mining for elements and things like that. Taking advantage of what's already there seems difficult at first, but developing robots to do it and developing markets to make it uh, to, to make it lucrative changes the the uh, environment a little bit. Yeah, I I agree. I almost think the the back end of it is just as important as the front end of it in terms of uh, creating that market to encourage the recycling of those materials in the first place, uh, just as much as them using it. So like the, the work that they're doing to try and encourage more people to trade their phones in or to to just send them to Apple to recycle them or whatever, I think that's just as important sometimes as them um, actually using them in their phone just because it kind of encourages them to not end up in landfills or in places where they're not going to be able to be reused later. Definitely. Absolutely. I want to talk for a moment about one of our sponsors of the show. Um, Mint Mobile has has kindly, kindly sponsored the show, and they're great. You know, if you're using one of the big wireless providers in 2019, have you ever asked yourself what exactly you're paying for? You know, there there's expensive retail stores, there's inflated prices, there's hidden fees, and you, you know you're being taken advantage of because they know that you'll pay. Enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage that you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. They don't have retail stores. They save on retail locations and overhead, and then they pass those savings to you. This is so cool. You remember in 2007 when the iPhone first came out, and instead of having to go and sit in an AT&T store for, 
45 minutes while they activated it. You just came home, plugged it into iTunes, and it activated on its own as long as you weren't on day one where the servers were swamped. I don't know. Did, did you have that experience? Did you have an iPhone 1? Uh, no, no. I was in high school when the uh, first iPhone came out, so that was that was far out of my price range. Okay, so it was very cool because in it, with all the phones before that, you had to literally sit in a store for 45 minutes, captive audience, and they loved that because then they could sell you all the other stuff they had in the store, right? Accessories yeah. and stuff. And wait for them to activate. And and they used to claim that that was what the upgrade fee was for, right? If, if you were upgrading a phone, they charged you an upgrade fee. And by the way, they also charged you an activation fee and all of those kinds of things to pile it on because they had you. And Mint Mobile doesn't do that, right? They make it easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. And every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. With Mint Mobile, you stop paying for unlimited data that you'll never use. You change between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts and all of your existing stuff. Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash appleinsider. That's mintmobile.com slash appleinsider. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash appleinsider. You know, and this this happened to me. I was, uh, I, I have Mint Mobile. I've been using it on one of my phones, but I also have a uh, Verizon family plan thing going on because, you know, my family's been upgrading with them and are in hock to them. So I, I'm moving over while my family is staying with the other one. We upgraded some phones and Verizon wanted to charge a, a fee. And I started asking why. Well, it's a standard fee. Well, what's that mean? It's standard. And and there's no good explanation from anyone what that fee is for. I, I asked Sprint and Sprint told me, let me dig up the answer here because I, I started asking around and trying to get good answers out of everyone. Sprint said that upgrade fees help Sprint offset the cost of helping customers upgrade to a new device. Uh, for example, stocking, selling, and activating devices on their network. So basically they're charging for the privilege of selling you the phone. Right. <laughs> which I thought was a part yeah. of the margin that they made on the phone, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I won't uh, point fingers at the specific carrier, but I'm in a si similar situation where we're on a family plan and I'm sort of stuck uh, with one of the large, large networks and very similar uh, experience whenever I switch to the iPhone. Uh, for whatever reason, whenever I was on um, Android, they never noticed whenever I switched phones. But with the iPhone, I had to get a new SIM and got that $30 activation fee. And I was like, what is this for? I did all of the work. Like, you didn't do anything. And called, and yeah, it was the same answer. It's like, oh, this is just a standard fee. This is just what you do. And, you know, you have no recourse. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, so there, there is, but there's, there's another thing I want to point out. You called, right? You spoke to a person? Yeah. Okay. So Verizon, if you upgrade online and you don't speak to anyone, they charge you $20. If you speak to someone or you use a retail store of any kind, they charge you $40. Holy cow. That's crazy. Well, they want the extra 20 because you've made a human do actual work. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, so all the more reason to think about Mint Mobile. That's, I, you know, I, I gotta say, their, their service has been good. They are a T-Mobile and VNO, so if you have good service from T-Mobile, you will have good service with, them, with Mint Mobile. It's, it's not a bad thing. Remember, remember way back, so Steve Jobs bought Pixar from George Lucas, from Lucasfilm. Right. Right. 
And then Disney bought Pixar, making Jobs one of the uh, largest shareholders. Yeah, quite quite a bit later, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to cut to the chase. So yeah, yeah. for a long time, there was this great sort of, of relationship between Disney and Apple, where Bob Iger of Disney was on Apple's board, and, and of course, Jobs was able to talk to Disney as part of being the largest shareholder. There, there's a great relationship between the two companies. And in, in Bob Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company, there was an excerpt that was printed to Vanity Fair, and he recalls his time with Jobs. You know, from patching up the relations with Pixar that were soured by Michael Eisner to the 7.4 billion acquisition of the uh, the animation studio, all of this stuff, basically talking about how much impact that Jobs had on Disney, and we, we've heard part of that story before. You know how um, how how Pixar really revitalized Disney Animation Studios, and oh, yeah. um, the quote here is is an interesting one. So the quote from that excerpt says. With every success the company has had since Steve's death, there's always a moment in the midst of my excitement when I think, I wish Steve could be here for this. It's impossible not to have the conversation within my head that I wish I could be having in real life, Iger writes. More than that, I believe that if Steve were still alive, we would have combined our companies, or at least discussed the possibility very seriously. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Big quote. Right? Isn't that a... Oh, yeah. A, what if, what if Disney owned Apple? What if Apple and Disney were, were co-equal? What if it was Disney Apple or Apple Disney, right? There's, there's something very big about that. Now, obviously, he's thinking about that. For Steve Jobs, I think the question would have been something like, you know, Apple was Steve Jobs' baby. It always was, from the very beginning to when he came back. Right. And, and when he came back in 97, before he was CEO, when he was talking at WWDC, he was talking about how Apple was one of the best brands in the world, but had been neglected and how how it needed to have the attention paid to it again. It needed to be de invested in again as a brand. And that, uh, you know, basically you do that by telling people what you stand for. And that's how we got the, the Think Different ads. It's because that was that was telling the world that Apple is for the creative. Apple is for the people who want to change the world. Apple is for the misfits. And we, we sort of lose sight of that today with the large, large numbers of iPhones that are out there, how lots of people have Macs that didn't before, how uh, you know kids grow up with iPads, how, how things have changed since that time. But there's still truth to that, right? Still truth to, to revitalize, revitalize a brand by saying what it's for. So what would be the, the reason that Jobs would go ahead and sell to Disney? Why would they merge? That's, that's the thing I was thinking of when I saw this quote come across Twitter uh, earlier today. It was like, I can see why Disney would want this because um, they're constantly trying to grow and find new new areas where they can sort of combine forces and make something even stronger or take over a market or whatever. And Apple certainly would help them uh, in, in those areas. But like, I don't understand why Apple would want this, um, especially in Apple with Steve Jobs at the helm, mm -hmm. because of what you said, it's his baby. And the idea of giving that up to a big corporation that doesn't necessarily have 
Apple's brand at its heart. Um, I, I don't know. I can't really see that. I mean, I think watching how Disney handled Pixar is a good example of that. They didn't ruin Pixar, and they definitely took a lot of the best parts of Pixar and made themselves way stronger because of it. But Pixar is definitely a diluted brand from what it used to be before the acquisition. I think I think most people would agree with that. Go elaborate and, on that really quickly. Is that because of all the sequels or or what? Yeah, I think it's uh, there's definitely a less of a focus. It's not its own entity anymore. It's just part of Disney, um, and they've definitely taken a lot of the um, attention from Pixar and and put it into Disney Animation Studios, which has made it better. And then there was that drive for a while there to try and pump more movies out of Pixar. Um, that was clearly like a strategic goal coming from Disney that I, I have a hard time imagining Pixar doing on their own before the Disney acquisition. And I think that that came through in the quality of films that came through for a while. And, uh, you know, it, like I said, it's not like Pixar is making bad movies now. It's just the brand, at least to my eyes and the people that I talk to, in the film world, uh, it's it's definitely been diluted a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. I still view them as running very separately. Um, the, the problem is that because they have some of the same heads going between Emeryville and and Anaheim, that you, you see sort of the Pixarification of Disney Animation Studios, which has been a good thing, but, you know, they're, they're like you say, running very similarly. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, Big Hero 6 wasn't a huge runaway hit the same way that Toy Story was. I think the worst Pixar movie that I can think of in recent years was the Dinosaur movie. For sure, yeah. <laughs> which I don't even remember the, the name of, which is how good a movie it uh, was. The Good Dinosaur. Well, there you go. Thank you. The Dinosaur <laughs> movie. And, you know, Disney has done very well with things like Frozen, so much so that there's going to be a Frozen 2. We're all waiting for it. But um, the real value for Pixar, the real thing that attracted Steve to it, was that the most powerful, the quote is, the most powerful thing in the world is to be able to tell stories, right? So what what is the, the story or what is the increased ability to tell stories if Disney had Apple? And I'm not sure that there is one because we already yeah. have, we have Apple TV Plus coming. So Apple has the ability to tell stories, right? Are we suggesting that Apple TV Plus would be a, a combined with Disney's streaming service and, and therefore be greater somehow? And also that it would have better reach because it would have all of the, uh, the iPhones and, and Apple TV supported by Disney? Yeah, I don't think you would have an Apple TV Plus uh, in a world where they were even considering combining. Right, right. It would be the Disney... I don't know. It's an interesting experiment. But what I what I really take away from this is, you know, for for people that have in, interacted with Steve Jobs and interacted with the thoughtful Steve Jobs, the considerate Steve Jobs, the the trying to make the product better, trying to make the world better for the user Steve Jobs, as opposed to the mercurial Steve Jobs, you know, those people are really touched by that. And when you get a Steve Jobs story out of a person like that, you really hear just how much they cherished him. Yeah, it, it always it always sounded like people highly valued any time they got to spend with him, whether it was like a personal time, just talking about life, or it was business time where you kind of got into the mind of this person who genuinely thought different than everybody else and sort of had this business acumen that was uh, matched by very few. Yeah. Now, it's important well, you know, to, to not forget the mercurial side, because clearly there was that. But I oh, can yeah. tell you, I can tell you the one time that someone saw Steve Jobs and, and talked to Steve Jobs and was not touched by it. Who's that? 
Well, so you know how Infinite Loop had the um, the the Apple Store, and the Apple Store at Infinite Loop was not an Apple retail store as such. It was more like a museum gift shop. Had tons of swag and things like that. You just can't get anywhere else. Oh, okay. You know, T-shirts and notebooks and pens and all kinds of of cool stuff that you you would only find there that you couldn't get anywhere else. And there, it was a big thing to go and and eat at Cafe Max or or go and get your picture taken in front of One Infinite Loop. And back when they had the Icon Garden, where they had all the icons from System 9 and before System 7 and so on, out in there with uh, Claris the dog cow and things like that, you'd take your picture with those statues. And there's this apocryphal story where there were tourists who came to get their picture taken in front of Infinite Loop, and they had an iPhone, and they asked someone to take their picture. And the 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 guy at first thought maybe they wanted to take the picture with him, but no, they really just wanted him to take the photograph. <laughs> and that person was Steve Jobs. Oh man, <laughs> and that's like uh oh no, go ahead. No, yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you go, you you were right there. How did you not know? <laughs> <laughs> my my first internship uh, was at this pretty big national company, but uh, our multinational company. Uh, but I was at the headquarters, just where I happened to be. And it was like my first day there, and I had a meeting in a room. And, you know, this is a giant cube farm situation, so I didn't actually sit next to anybody on my team. And so I didn't know where this meeting room was. And so I was sort of meandering the halls trying to find this place. And a guy walked past me, and I asked him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can show you. And we walked through through the building for a while. And then eventually he's like, hey, I need to pop in my office real quick. And he walked in his office, and I was standing right outside and I noticed on the side table, there was a big magazine and it had a big picture and said, the new CEO of the company that I was at. And it was this guy. And I just accidentally <laughs> asked this guy who happened to be the CEO uh, for directions of this conference room. And when I got back to uh, to the meeting, finally, everybody was like asking me what he was like because nobody had met him because this was like a really <laughs> big company. And uh, so, yeah, I, I can I can uh, I can definitely empathize with those tourists. I guess. Even better would have been <laughs> if he'd said, oh, it's my first day, too. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's find it together. Yeah. No, I uh, I was at Apple's campus a couple of times when when Jobs was there also on campus, but I never got to run into him. Um I did meet people and and had meetings with people who'd had lunch with him and regularly and and were, you know, part of the the regular sort of brain trust kind of thing, but you know, you you, you walk outside of Infinite Loop and there was the Mercedes parked at an angle in the handicapped spot. Yep. <laughs> yep. That is with uh, no license plate. No license or like plate. Temporary well, plates or whatever. Well, so the deal with the no license plate was that if you leased a car, you didn't have to have a plate on it for the first six months. And so right. you just kept cycling cars every six months. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. He definitely uh he definitely had a character. He left a mark. Yes, that is a good way of putting it. I did you order a new iPhone? I did. This is this is my first year um, jumping on the pre-order train. I have a I have a new iPhone and a Apple Watch Series Five heading my way. Ooh, fancy, fancy! Yeah. Which iPhone did you order? Um, I went with the uh, Pro, uh, the not Max one. Interesting. I went with so I last week I asked all of our readers and all of our listeners to tell me what phone I ought to get, and I got a bunch of cool opinions back. I ended up ordering an iPhone 11 non-pro. Yeah, that based on uh, what I was listening to, that that seemed to match what you would prefer. I think. Well, my situation was was that 
I needed to order one to replace my 10R, which I'm handing down. And uh, I, I historically, I find that when they make a big leap on something, that if you wait for the S year, as it's called, or the, or the second year of it, that things get refined. And a good example of that was where we first got Touch ID in the iPhone 5, but you couldn't use it for Apple Pay. It, it, you had to wait for the 5S in order to use it for Apple Pay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, that's obviously a long, long time ago, but it's that kind of an example where they first introduce something and then it's refined for the second version and works better. Face ID is kind of like that, where the first version of Face ID worked, but it, boy, it got a whole lot better on the next phones. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what the improvements are on this one. Yeah, uh, Earlier views seem to indicate that it's not that much. But I'm I'm wondering if I made a wrong choice. I'm, what's, I'm, what's making you think that? Well, we have, we have this report, right? We have this speculation that says that the iPhone 11 Pro has more than just application RAM, that they've also got additional RAM devoted just to the computational photography. Yeah, this is Steve Trouton Smith's uh, tweets. Yes. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this because uh, based on my understanding of how iOS works, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Well, so you've got four gig of RAM accessible by iOS and apps. Right. Right. But computational photography takes resources and it's not just CPU resources. You also have to have RAM to store all the stuff that you're computing. Yeah, these huge buffers of images that they're always capturing. Right. And so if you're capturing a huge amount of images, do you want to flood your application RAM and have to suspend apps and forget apps and things like that? Well, you, you background everything, so you've got the RAM to do that. Or do you just throw more RAM at it? Yeah, but, but why not make that accessible to the applications when the camera's not open? Like iOS is already built on this whole premise of Anything in the background can lose its RAM uh, memory allocation at any point, and the whole system is built to sort of handle that. And so, like, currently, whenever you open the camera, a lot of times it will uh, just dump a whole bunch of application state to make room for the camera. So, like, I understand wanting more RAM for the camera. The part I don't quite understand is why it's only for the camera, and when the camera's not in use, it just lays dormant. The only well, thing I so, can think of... Oh, go ahead. I mean, one of the things that users notice is Safari. If you have tabs open in Safari and you switch away to some other application and you come back to Safari, Safari has to reload your stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is super annoying. But that's that's an artifact of this anything in the background can be dumped. And Safari, even if you just had it open, is now in the background and gets dumped. Right? And it makes people feel as if the phone is less responsive or less good than it is because that happens. You know, anytime that, right, right, the default years ago was you had to save everything. And then we got autosave in Microsoft Office and, and automatically saving in Google Docs, where the default is now save all my stuff instead of the default is lose all my stuff unless I remember to save. Right. You know, growing up and writing things for school, if I didn't remember to save, chances were very good that I would lose all my work. Oh, yeah. I still I still remember losing my first uh, Microsoft Paint masterpiece uh, on our old Windows 95. <laughs> yeah. So it, it happens. And losing all of your Safari stuff, even if it can be reloaded, 
feels bad. And, and so something like this would prevent that. Well, but, but again, I don't quite understand why, why that RAM doesn't, can't be accessible outside of the camera you'd, app. Because you'd fill it and then it would have the same experience and there'd be no real difference. Well, but what I'm saying is, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, misunderstanding how iOS does things, but I thought it was dumping memory um, wisely, like based on when you last used an application or something. And so I would think it would just be like a queue. And um, as you're, as you're putting more things onto or using up more and more RAM, the oldest uh, RAM allocation would be the stuff that's dropped. Right. So if the camera needs four gigs of RAM to, to like do this new deep fusion stuff or whatever, um, I would think that having extra four gigs of RAM would always, would give you the same benefit, even if it's accessible to other applications. Yeah. But I, what I'm curious about is, is this going to be like a different type of RAM that's maybe specifically connected to some of these new uh, chips that are designed specifically for the camera? So it has some sort of different allocation. Like if it needs to be able to write to that faster for these kind of crazy uh, buffers that they're keeping of pictures that they're constantly taking, I I'm not really sure. Yeah, so the, the speculation is that there's four gig of application RAM, user RAM, and two gig of RAM devoted specifically to the camera. And the, the truth is, and it's, we, we sort of need to tear down here, right? We need to tear down and we need a firmware analysis. So you, you could see that it's just one six gig chip and it's partitioned in the OS, or right. you could see that there are two separate physical chips. Yeah, if it's two separate chips, I feel like that would make more sense to me why, why maybe they're separated, because there might actually be a physical difference. Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain at all. I, I think it's, we're going to have to wait to find out is, is the story here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once I fix it and some of these people that tear these things down, and then Steve Trotton-Smith and Guy Rambo, once they start tearing into the firmware, uh, combined with that, I think we'll get a lot more answers. Yeah. That's, that's what's going to have to happen here. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. It's cool to see them throwing more hardware um, at, at these different computational photography things. That, that seems to be the big differentiator between Google and Apple is Apple has, has the budget and the know-how to uh, throw a lot more hardware at the problems, whereas Google kind of seems to just double down a lot more on the software side. Definitely. Absolutely. Have you ever heard of this app called Masterclass? Uh, I've heard of the like YouTube series thing, or maybe I'm just thinking of their YouTube apps that I see them, uh, YouTube ads that I see them on all the time. Right. So basically, they are an application. They run on Apple TV. They run on a phone, iPhone. They run on. Um, I think you can view them from your computer as well. You they they are on Android, and they do this very cool thing where they go out and they find people who are experts in their field and teach lessons. They let you learn from the very best with exclusive access to online classes taught by the masters of their craft. And when we think about the iPhone, obviously the camera is, is definitely the highlight of this release, right? Oh, yeah. So you could take a, a class. You could learn how to take photographs from Annie Leibovitz. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> right? You, you could improve your photography skills from Annie Leibovitz or, or if you wanted to do videography, right? If you were a filmmaker, wanted to be a filmmaker, you could learn to make films with Ken Burns as your instructor. 
Yeah, I assume they have Ron Howard as well. Ron Howard as a director, yeah. Absolutely. So they have over 60 different instructors across tons of categories. There is literally something for everyone. I mean, they have they have categories, they have science, they have music, they have filmmaking, they have they have just you know all kinds of things. You music with uh Tom Morella, Carlos Santana, Timbaland, Itzhak Perlman, you know, pretty much everyone from across the spectrum. Herbie Hancock for jazz. It's so cool. It really is. And and so I I have taken some of these classes and you know, I, I started with Ken Burns. I met Ken Burns in 1995 or 96. Oh, uh, man. Back when he was doing the Civil War and baseball uh, series. And um, got to talk with him for a half hour back then. It was very cool. And being able to take the lessons and really learn from him was was really valuable. Being able to, to do the same thing from Annie Leibovitz, just huge, really. Because I, I was blown away by the depth of the knowledge and the quality of the experience. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as an Apple Insider listener, you get a 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Apple Insider. That's masterclass.com slash Apple Insider for 15% off masterclass. And speaking of photography, so travel photographer Austin Mann has gone ahead and written a, a blog entry and heaped praise on the new tri-camera setup found on the iPhone 11 Pro. Have you seen this? Have you seen some of the pictures that he's shot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did the same thing with the uh, 10s last year, right? Yeah, he's been doing this for the past couple of years. But Apple gave him the early opportunity to check out the iPhone model before launch. And he took it along on a trip to China, where he's documenting the Bach project featuring Chalice Jojo Ma. Now... He was eager to try out the new ultra-wide lens, night mode, and some of the other improvements. And he was also really interested in the capture outside the frame kind of thing, a camera option where you, you sort of are allowed to see the scene outside of the frame while you shoot with the standard lens. So you can go and decide if you want to use the ultra-wide lens. And uh, he wrote, one of the most interesting camera features introduced this year is the camera outside the frame. Basically, if I'm shooting with the wide 26mm lens, the iPhone 11 Pro is also capturing with the ultra-wide 13mm, so I can decide later about my framing. If the software detects a human on the edge of the frame, a little icon pops up to indicate you might want to crop out, which is pretty cool. And as a part of this feature, I can see what's just outside the frame, a preview of what would be included in my shot if I switched to the other lens. And, you know, he, he talked about how it performed in well-lit situations. And as the environment gets dim users will naturally likely switch back to the wide lens with its faster aperture and night mode. So that's interesting. The, the night mode works on the, the regular wide lens. Yeah, it does not work on the ultra-wide, right? That's kind of what I'm getting from this, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the impression I got from a bunch of the other uh, reviews, is that the ultra-wide lens doesn't have like enough focus pixels, I think was the reason that they stated. Um, that's, that's what I heard, yeah. Yeah, and it also doesn't have image stabilization or optical image stabilization, um, which shouldn't be that big of a deal on a super wide angle lens like that. But I guess that's probably necessary for some of the night mode stuff that they're doing. You know, I, I think about stuff like this, right? This is incredible. Seeing his photos unedited, right, are are really impressive. Yeah, they they're, are. they're unbelievable. Like if you haven't seen this, you should go. I don't know if you do show notes, but. Uh, you should go right away and find this because oh, yeah. the We're pictures that he notes. captured are unbelievable. And the the thing is that light trails are still possible 
you know, the device is able to detect when it's placed on a tripod versus handheld and adjusts so that the light trails are still captured. Um, it's his quote, his end quote here is, I think I can say this is easily the most dramatic leap forward we've seen since the introduction of panorama mode on iPhone 5 in 2012. It's the first time in a long time I've looked at an image and said to myself, I can't believe I shot this with my phone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a, that is a great quote. Uh, and it's very exciting to see somebody like that saying that same thing. So a couple of episodes, we interviewed the CEO of Filmic and Filmic was featured in the keynote. And one of the things they showed with Filmic was multiple camera simultaneous recording. And the, the ability to process all of the cameras all at the same time. And that feature appears to be coming not just to iPhone 11, but also to 10s and 10R. Yeah, I heard that. Which is pretty cool. And so we started looking around and the CTO of Filmic commented on this. And what he said was there are a variety of features contributing to max sustained capture pipeline throughput, bandwidth, peak performance aside, thermal management is the most important factor for this kind of feature. Oh. The A13 Bionic has the ability to shut down parts of the system on chip processor complex. And that as a result of being able to do that, the sustained performance of Apple's new silicon is unlike anything I've seen before from an embedded system, unquote. That's interesting. I, I never would have put together that it was a thermal constraint was the bigger issue. I guess I should have because uh, coming from the sort of video world where I was using DSLRs a lot for video, uh, I know that was always an issue there. Like they they had video capture constraints uh, partially because of like tax reasons, apparently, but also because of thermal problems with the processors they were using. Yeah. Thermal management gets everything. It really yeah. does. You know, you don't think about it, but... <laughs> But that's, it, it, it gets everything, it touches everything. You know, and, and part of this question was around, you know, is it possible to bring this feature of multiple camera capture to Android? And, you know, there was talk about Snapdragon Arms and Exynos and things like that. Um, but it's, it's not just the CPU that needs to be considered, it's RAM and it's that power management. And the, the biggest part about it is that thermal management apparently, and that, Apple Silicon is, is quote, unlike anything I've ever seen before from an embedded system, unquote. Huh. Huge, huh? Yeah, and I guess also the fact that uh, they know exactly what the device is. Like on Android, you know, you could maybe target a specific Samsung phone, I guess, but it'd be a lot harder to bring that feature over and try to play the game of, is this going to overheat this phone, but not this phone, and this phone in this certain environment? And, you know, it'd be a lot more... Uh, technically challenging just because of the wide variety of hardware. Right. And of course, if you're using Samsung, then you're filming something and midstream, your phone bursts into flames in your hands. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm never going to let that joke go. I'm sorry. It's, it's, too, it's still too easy, even after all this time. <laughs> well, I'm right on the precipice of the, uh, the MacBooks that were just recalled. So it's a little, it's a little too close to home. For oh, me. it's personal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that um, that peak uh, feature where, like, if it detects a person at the edge of the frame, it'll recommend uh, reframing it for you. I've yeah. heard that they did the same thing with video. So if you if you shoot video on the new iPhone 11 and you're using the regular uh, wide lens, then if it detects a person outside of the frame, like during any point in the shot, I guess it will recommend, "Hey, we could reframe this video for you," and 
somehow intelligently reframe the shot. I don't know if it does it to the whole thing or if it just like sort of pan and scans it over during those certain parts. I'm not entirely sure how it works, and I haven't seen any reviewers actually show it off yet. But I've read a couple of different reviews that have mentioned it, so I'm really I'm really interested to see how that plays out. I personally am interested in the cinematic stabilization. You know, they showed us in the keynote this video of cars being shot and filmed driving around what looked oh, like yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the salt flats. And I, when, when I shoot video, I tend to use Instagram's Hyperlapse app. Oh, right. They released this a few years ago. They haven't touched in ages. I, I don't even know what their plans are for it. But what's nice about it is basically it does the stabilization for me. And, and their, their intention is to be able to use it, uh, you know, 16 times faster than real life. So you get these, these really cool hyperlapses moving through motion stuff. I turn it down to 1x. It records the audio and basically does really, really good stabilization. Interesting. I did not know you could do that. Because Apple added a time-lapse feature, which I thought yeah. was doing the same thing as the hyperlapse. But I didn't realize you could turn the hyperlapse down to uh, regular speed. Oh, yeah. I use it for that. When I'm when I'm doing handheld interviews where I'm holding the camera up, holding the phone up and interviewing someone, I do I turn that on and if my hand shakes, it doesn't matter. That is very interesting. And in, in fact, I was recording someone once in an interview and someone else thought they were going to um you know, they were trolling me. They they ran up and pushed my elbow hard so that I was going to drop the phone. And hyperlapse worked around it, basically clipped a frame and and made it smoothed over. So you couldn't really tell other than a small dip that my hand shook at all. See, that's what's interesting because like Apple is doing quite a bit of digital stabilization on the regular video that it shoots. But I thought yeah. the thing with the time lapse and the hyperlapse was that because you're speeding it up, there's a bunch of frames that it, it's going to drop anyway. And so it can kind of intelligently choose which ones to drop based on bumps and stuff like that. But once you go down to regular speed, I don't, I don't really understand how that works unless they're doing some sort of uh, frame interpolation to like fill the bad frames in or something. Well, they do a little bit of that. They also do a little bit of the crop and move around so that you can lose the edges of the frame, but have enough to stabilize within. Right, right. Huh. Interesting. I am definitely going to play with that after this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a cool one. And I've, I've used it for years. It's done very well for me. And that's a separate app or is it built in? It's a separate app. It's a okay. separate app. And and like I said, I haven't looked to see when they last updated that thing. It may be long unsupported, but I, it's one of the things that it and Halide app always get reinstalled on my phone. Oh, yeah. Halide or Halide. I'm not sure how you pronounce it now. Uh, that is... <laughs> yeah, I've that, ruined you. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what the official way to pronounce it is? Uh, you know, th this is the problem. When I learn a word by reading it, I'm never quite exactly sure what the, the correct pronunciation is. So I'm going to look it up really quickly and we'll know for sure. There you go. But yeah, that, so Halide and then uh, the app that they just came out with, um, oh shoot, what's it called? Uh, Spectre. That's another app by the same guys uh, with the point of doing long exposure or like mimicking long exposure shots. So it's like light trails or um, removing people from you know, crowded places if they're all moving or like evening out water or waterfalls and stuff. I've used both of those apps a lot, uh, especially we just did a vacation to Seattle this summer and did like Mount Rainier Park and stuff. And I could not mm -hmm. believe, like we brought the SLR and my wife pretty much used the SLR and I use my camera with Halide Inspector the whole time. 
And a lot of my favorite pictures from that trip came from the iPhone and not our SLR. Um, I was I was really blown away being able to shoot in RAW and then go into Lightroom on my phone and uh, pull out a lot of those details that were dropped. I, it was just it was so much fun. Like it brought back a lot of the joy I got um, whenever I first got into photography. Whenever I first bought my first SLR. Um, shooting with Holide Inspector and all these different computational photography apps is is really sort of bringing that joy back for me anyway. That's that's so cool, you know. I I've known people that have had DSLRs and changed to the phone and you, you, people talk a lot about how much they give up with the phone, but I think about how much you get, right? How much you really gain by doing that. It's it's Yeah, it so It's getting important. to the point where it's a different tool more than the the old adage that we always used, which is it's the it's the camera you have with you. You know what I mean? Like it's good enough and it's on you and it's super portable. But it's it's starting to get to the point where if I have both in my hands, I might choose my phone in a lot of situations over my SLR. And that that to me is kind of crazy. Um, there's obviously points where the SLR is just you know way better. Uh, the the physics of the glass and the the software has not gotten to the point where it can mimic really good depth of field yet or um, Oh, I was going to say long exposure, but I guess that's actually maybe changing uh, with this new new crop of cameras. So, looking up at dictionary.com, halide and halide are are both considered correct. Is that so? What is the what is the actual word? Is that like the large or well, it's a chemical okay. compound, right? It's it's one of the elements that's part of halogen, and it used to be used in photography because before there were uh, film per se there was silver halide prints. Ah. Right, silver halide is a silver salt. It's one of the compounds that you used to make silver photography. That makes sense. Back in, in you know, 150 yeah, years yeah. ago kind of thing. Cool. Well, that makes me like the app a little bit more even. <laughs> They're pretty awesome. Speaking of which, I am super excited to see what they what they can do with uh, with these cameras too. They, they always write up a really awesome... Uh, like technical review of what the iPhone is doing with with the actual like raw data that they're pulling out and what kind of crazy computations they're running against it. And then they always seem to come out with some cool way of making their app even better uh, when these new new cameras come out. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they do too. Definitely. Taylor Store has their own position, right? Their own story in the world, right? And their story is, their position is that ready-made garments and off-the-rack sizes have no place in the modern world. They believe in embracing individualism with uh, a new way to purchase clothes that are made to order and tailored precisely to your measurements. And so basically their, their thing is they offer customizable dress shirts that start at $59 with endless options to choose from for men and women. And they make it really easy to get your measurements. So you don't use a tape measure. You, you use an app that they put on your phone called uh, Size Me, and it takes a photograph of you and scans your personal measurements in seconds. And they have a generous, perfect fit guarantee. So you don't have any risk in ordering. If it doesn't fit, they remake it. They don't bother with returns. The one that's not right is yours to keep or give to charity. And they are a 100% carbon neutral business. So I did this. I, I started picking through all of the different options on their store and I put a shirt in my cart. I uh, downloaded the app to my phone. I took the the embarrassing pictures standing in front of the app. And uh, and I say that only because I am not in the best of physical fitness shape <laughs> that I wish I was. And, and so I took the pictures and 
but this is this is why you do this, right? You know, if you go in and you buy a shirt that's the size you want to be, not the size that you are, it also doesn't fit right. So here, at least, they take pictures and, and get, get the size right. So I, I put the phone against the wall and aimed it up at myself and took the pictures and made the uh, made the order using those measurements. And the shirt, they sent me pictures of them making it. They sent me pictures of, of it being boxed up and shipped out. It got to me and I put it on and the darn thing fits. And it was great. And and my wife still thinks that I ordered an ugly shirt, but I don't care. I'm happy. <laughs> I really like it. And and when I say ugly shirt, it was my choice. What I did was I made a, a plain fabric for the outer side and then for the inside of the button placket and for the inside of the cuff, I put sort of a little flowered pattern. And uh, it's just a nice accent kind of thing that I thought was cool. She's not convinced. But anyway, the size fits. And so I'm going to be ordering some more. You can get started with your very own made-to-measure dress shirt today at tailorstore.com slash Apple Insider. New customers will get their very first dress shirt starting at only $39. That's 50% off regular pricing, plus free shipping with the code Apple Insider. That's tailorstore.com slash Apple Insider, the promo code Apple Insider. I-, I know, I know, sometimes we do kooky stuff, but I really like shirts. I really like getting things like that and and being able to talk about them and share how they're using an app to make it even easier. Because that that used to be the real problem, right, is, well, I don't know what size I am. You know, what's what's my collar size? What's what's my arm length? You know, arm length. No idea. And so to be able to just take a photograph and have it be right is such a relief. Yeah, that's definitely uh, as a person who who lives in the software world where I wear t-shirts and jeans most of the time. Uh, the rare occasion where I do need to dress up, like for a wedding that I have uh, coming up, actually, it's it's overwhelming to. Uh, to try and figure out what my sizes are for everything because it's not knowledge I just have in the back of my head. So I definitely like the idea of an app being able to at least get me uh, get me close to there pretty quickly. Absolutely. Now, I want to... This is the last story we're going to go with. I want to talk about Steve Dowling for just a few minutes. Steve Dowling, formerly, originally, you know, a long time ago, was the... Uh, he was a writer and producer in CNBC's DC Bureau. And he established the CNBC Silicon Valley Bureau and served as bureau chief. After that, he got hired by Apple, and he was responsible for worldwide media relations and communication strategy. This is obviously after Katie Cotton left. And he led the PR team as well as employee communications and corporate events. So he's been with Apple for about 15 years, 16 years, and he decided to resign. His, his letter says, after 16 years at Apple, countless keynotes, product launches, and the occasional PR crisis, I've decided the time is right for me to step away from our remarkable company. This is something that's been on my mind for a while, and it came into sharp focus during the latest and, for me, last launch cycle. Your plans are set, and the team is executing brilliantly as ever, so it's time. Phil Schiller is going to come in and manage after that. His loyalty knows no bounds, all that good stuff. My question is, Who's going to replace him after Phil's interim? Yeah. So, like, it, the actual role that he's playing here is is communications, right? And this is... It, well, internal and external. Say. This is both this is, internal is... and external. So, is there is there a separate person under him for each of those roles? Or was he sort of the, the person sort of uh, managing the public face of the company for, for a long time? as well as the internal. Well, I mean, so he's the the he's the guy, right? When, when you talk about 
where responsibility stops. He's the guy. But Apple PR has a number of people. Like, let's let's just throw a number out there and say 15 to 20. And I'm sure that anyone from Apple PR that's listening will say, no, that's wrong. There are right, however right. many of us. Fine. But, but there are a number of people that report to him. And, and you see this from time to time when Apple PR issues an announcement and there are two names attached to the announcement and they're not always the same two names. And, and, and we know there are employees. But, but he was the guy. And so, and the same thing is true in the jobs era where Katie Cotton was the person and Katie Cotton was there answering everything. I met her once at a Macworld in 2007 and, uh, and got to talk to her for a few minutes back then. And, and so basically, they are the public face. And, and beyond just public face, he was also doing internal right. comms. So with many of the other replacements that have come in when people have retired or resigned, um, we have seen operations people take the role. Yeah, definitely. That has been the, the theme um, across the board since in the Tim Cook era is operations is sort of uh, heading up most of the sort of executive level positions. What do you think about that? You know, I, I, like there's that part of me that has the sort of romantic vision of Apple as the giant version of the small indie shop that's doing cool creative work. But the reality is they're a huge multinational company now that operations has to be the hardest thing about running that company. Um, and I, I actually kind of like the idea of, you know, if you're going to have this uh, hierarchical management structure, I like the idea that the people at the top are sort of handling the less creative, less fun stuff. And if, if it's possible that the people up there can manage this crazy logistical nightmare that is their multinational um, operation strategy now, then maybe that frees up the people down at the bottom, like leading teams doing the creative work. It frees them up to maybe be more creative. I don't know if that's just wishful thinking on my part, but it kind of makes sense to me. Well, my my concern is that there are some things that, that... I mean, it's very easy to say everything needs to be project planned because everything's got a release date kind of thing. Yes, I get that. At the same time, I'm, I'm not sure that that necessarily lends itself to the, the necessary creative work like managing press releases or managing crises or managing That's launch true. cycles. And how people communicate about them, and so, well, I'm I'm almost hopeful that we don't get an ops person in this role. Let Let me ask you this: You've lived through a a change in this exact position before, right? From another longtime person. Uh, yeah. How much did you feel that change whenever it switched from uh I forgot what you said her name was uh Cotton Katie Cotton yeah Katie Cotton whenever whenever she stepped down and Steve Dowling took over, um. Did you feel a change then? There was definitely a shift. So it's it's definitely something that um, this person can at least have an impact on on how the company I guess looks through through how they manage like PR situations. Mm-hmm. Is that the big change? Well, I mean, PR situations is is sort of reductionist, right? There's everything from what is the keynote going to work like. Where is the keynote going to be? How is the keynote going to be invited? You know, how are people going to get invites to to who gets review units and loaners like Austin Mann or 
to what is the way that the device demo area is going to be constructed like and work like after the event to, um, you know, the quotes that people put from media into the keynote, right? There are quotes that get referred to in there. Whose quotes are going to get used? Why? And there, you know, or, or even which outlets get invited and which outlets get shunned, like Gizmodo from years ago for the uh, having them having the iPhone 4, I think it was. Right? Right. So, so okay. there's a yeah. wide range, and it's not just crises. It's also... You know, what media do we want to highlight? Who are the partners that we can use to tell our story or who's helping tell our story? Right. There's like the whole how they manage the uh, rollout of this new like pro Mac and the the iMac pro where they brought in a bunch of people and they formed that, you know, pro committee and stuff. Some of that was probably a logistics of the project, but a big part of that was probably just how they revealed all that information to everybody. And I guess that would come under Steve at that time. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it, what this makes me think of is like when Phil Schiller took over the App Store, what was that, three or yeah. four years ago, yeah. something like that? Um, the App Store at that point was in sort of a, not the best state, and he had a huge impact, whether it was him or just the fact that somebody with uh, more leverage or whatever was in that position. There was a huge shift at that time um, for the better. But here it's interesting because it, it does feel like Apple's uh, communications is running at pretty pretty good speed. Like I don't know many people that are complaining about how Apple is uh, running events or keynotes or anything. Although I guess you had a couple of gripes with the last keynote, but you get the idea. It's not like this is an area that needs uh, correction. Or well, anything and I'm not like concerned that, so. at all about Phil doing this because Phil has been a a good one for communicating with the press for years. You know, whether it's the the recent innovation of Phil deciding to appear on Gruber's The Talk Show, or it's, it's, but Phil Phil has been great at relating to people and relating to the press for a long time. That doesn't bother me. What's, what's on my radar is what happens after. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so the other positions that have been filled by operations people, um, how do you feel those have gone? A little too early to tell. Yeah, I guess that's true. A little too early to tell. There hasn't necessarily been big changes um, in that front. Yeah, it, it, it takes a while for us to see the results of these changes, right? It, it takes two years for them to make an iPhone start to finish. Right. So we, we need a longer timeline to really feel these changes. Yeah, although I do feel like uh, something like this, you'd probably feel relatively quickly. Yeah. But we'll, we'll find out, you know, here in the next year um, with as keynotes come up. I mean, presumably the next, uh, fingers crossed, October keynote would would have been under mostly under Steve's control. Yeah. Um, I, I'm guessing those are planned pretty well, he far says out this ahead is of his time, last, but, so here we go. <laughs> well, that's true, but it's his last uh, as the leader or whatever, but he's obviously not going to uh, pre-announce something that they haven't sure. announced yet. Well, that's all the time I have. I'm completely out of time. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is this is fun. So tell people where they can get your app. Don't forget your app, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, you can find my app. Uh, the best way is to find my app on the App Store. Uh, you can just search Dark Noise, um, and it's the, the little purple icon. Uh, but you can also go to darknoise.app. You can find me on Twitter at ChuckyC17. That's C-H-U-C-K-Y 17. Um, and I, I post a lot about 
Apple in general, Apple News stuff, uh, interact with you quite a bit. Um, but I also do updates on on the app and what I'm doing there as well. I'm, I'm Victor. You, you can email me at victor.appleinsider.com or on Twitter at vmarks. Thank you so much. We will be back with more next week. See you then.